Your financial mission, should you choose to accept it, is to achieve financial clarity. New Intel suggests that bad financial actors are constantly filling the landscape with misinformation and other barriers and obstacles, leaving you with limited time to make the right choices for a successful financial future. To make things easier, we've chosen your team for you. Financial Commander Janine Theus will help lead you to success. As always, should you avoid the excellent guidance you're about to receive, you'll be disavowed. Also, this message will self-destruct in three seconds. Three, two, one. You're listening to Your Financial Mission. Walter Storholt here alongside Janine Theus. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of the podcast. Janine is the CEO and founder of Theus Wealth Advisors. She is our financial commander here on the podcast each week with an office in Columbia, Howard County area, and uh, serving you throughout the area. Uh, You can find out more information about Janine and her team at TheusWealthAdvisors.com. That's TheUSWealthAdvisors.com. Janine has more than 21 years of experience as a naval intelligence officer, and she just brings that same mentality and approach to helping you craft a great financial plan and finding the straight skinny on your financial plan, as we like to say the uh, the military term there every once in a while. It's always my favorite part, getting to say, we get down to the straight skinny of your finances here That's on the right. show. That's right. The straight skinny for a fat retirement. Right. <laughs> there you go. I love it. That's that's the new tagline right there, for sure. Uh, This is one of our favorite editions of the podcast. It's called The Mailbag. It's where we answer some of your questions on the program. And we've got a bunch to work through today, Janine, so I'm looking forward to this. If you would like to submit a question to be featured on on a future show, you can do that by going to Janine's website. Again, that's theuswealthadvisors.com. First question comes to us from Craig. And, And these questions, by the way, will cover lots of different topics. Craig says, my wife is significantly younger than me, and I'm guessing she's going to outlive me by 10 years. Do I need life insurance on myself to be sure that she's okay after I'm gone? Well, a quick answer would be absolutely. But the longer answer would be it depends. You know, how much have you saved? How successful has the has your investment strategy been so that you can self-insure? We never know what the end is going to look like or when it's going to come. So you have to take a look at what your in the court system is called your human life value. So if you're still working and just for simple numbers, if you make 100000 a year and you're going to work for another, let's say, 10 years, that's a million dollars. Now, a lot of people will say, well, that's a lot of money and I don't want my wife to be rich. (laughs) I have heard that. But a million dollars is not a lot of money these days and it's not going to make your spouse rich if you are predeceased by a significant number of years. What you are doing by making sure life insurance is on the books is allowing some of the dreams or hopes and dreams that you had uh, formed together, like college education, not necessarily paying off the mortgage, but at least giving the, per, the survivor options to occur. Otherwise, you're putting people into a corner, you know, if something happens and there isn't enough money. And that's the worst situation to be in. And it, and it happens a lot. So uh, I would say absolutely, you do want the life insurance. The question is what kind, how much, how much should you be spending? What does it look like? And what do you want it to do? Hmm. That's, you know, so that requires a conversation. All great questions. And Craig, this is probably 
up there on the list of probably most common questions that a financial advisor is going to get is, you know, do I still need life insurance? You know, after the kids are gone and and I'm at an older age, a lot of people just assume you don't need it anymore. But it is definitely worth a conversation if you are in that retirement range, because there are some uses for it. And so you've got to be aware of that. But other times it's not a fit. So just got to ask the question, which you did today. And hopefully that's a bit of a helpful answer for you. Uh, Great question, Craig. Let's hop over to one here from Jan. Jan says, I have an old rental property that I'd really like to sell, but I'm worried about the taxes I'll incur. Should I just suck it up and sell it anyway? And then Jan finishes her question by saying, by the way, love the show. (laughs) Well, thank you, Jan. Again, like a good CPA would tell you, it depends what is your basis in the property? And yes, it's going to be, if, if it's a long-term hold, which is over 12 months, then you're going to have a capital gains tax. But depending on how much it is, how much time and energy it's taking from your schedule, that might be a good thing. Sometimes that's the trade-off. I'll pay the tax to not have to be a landlord anymore or uh, things like that, because people don't often think about that when they have a rental property. If that's not the business you should be in, then sell the property because property taxes do go up. You have maintenance and repair. There's, you know, if you don't want to get the call in the middle of the night that the toilets aren't working or your property manager isn't doing what they should be doing, those are all questions that affect quality of the deal. So capital gains rates are not that high. And I would be probably more uh, prone to say, sell it if you need to get it off your books. Good guidance and a good question. A lot of people also wondering about rental property when they uh, get to retirement age. Is it something you're going to want to continue to keep up with or, yeah, should you just get rid of it? And uh, maybe in this case, Jan, that would be a good way to go. As always, though, get a full analysis of your plan before making big decisions like that and pulling the trigger on certain things. You're going to want to make sure that you're having the full picture taken into account of your financial plan because all these things always fit together nicely. Josh has a good question for us as well. Josh says, I consider myself a conservative investor, but sometimes I think I shouldn't be so conservative. Do you think I should loosen up and take a little bit more risk? Well, that's a great question because what do you mean by being a conservative investor? (laughs) People have different definitions for that, right? That's, That's right. For some people, it means having more in cash or more in bonds. That's pretty typical. A lot of people will say I'm conservative, but you know, because of the risk, I don't, you know, I want to take the kitty roller coaster and not the anaconda, <laughs> you know, so it, we have to measure what it is we're talking about here because there are various types of risk when it comes to portfolio design. One of the things we do encourage folks is to not take risks for which you are not compensated. So what does that mean? That means let's use the research and the science to have a properly designed portfolio for your objectives and time horizon. That means you can take the appropriate amount of risk, but not you won't be end up gambling with your money. So that's a big thing because a lot of people do associate that risk with, oh, I got to pick the right thing. And, that, and what we're saying is that never works or rarely works and it doesn't work for long. So let's get a, a cogent strategy together for what you're trying to accomplish and see if you're really a more balanced investor. Yeah, I think it just always comes back to what's your definition for sure, because someone else might think they take a lot of risk in their portfolio when in reality – you know, the rest of the world might look at that and say, no, you're actually pretty conservative or not as, uh, 
you know, not as risky as you might think. So it's all about perspective and, and how it fits into the overall landscape and is your line of thinking in line with the rest of the world. And we could probably expand that for a fun, larger conversation, Janine, <laughs> outside yeah. of the financial realm uh, at yeah. some point in time. But we'll keep it within the lanes for this one. But yeah, good question, Josh. I think that's probably, you know, it's not so much should you loosen up. I think the, the answer to that question is, Janine kind of hit on there for sure, is let's look at the very first part of your question. I consider myself a conservative investor. Let's see if you indeed are and see if that matches up with reality, because a lot of the time that's out of out of whack. People think they're one thing and then they are something else. All right, Amanda. Exactly. Amanda's got a really good one for you here, Janine. And uh, Amanda's got some specifics. She says, I'm going to be 60 next year. Actually revealing your age, Amanda. Way to go. I feel in pretty good shape with a couple of 401ks two pensions, and a Roth IRA. I want to retire at 62, so two years from now. My husband, who's two years younger, thinks he's going to have to work until he dies because he never really saved for retirement. How do you handle a retirement plan when a couple's savings are way out of whack like ours? Well, there are a couple of questions that come to mind immediately. How long have you been married? Is this a second marriage? because sometimes that's the case. So you have to first decide, are you both going to be on the same page with regard to the spending of the money in retirement? He may have to work longer if your savings are not enough. It looks like you've done a really good job. Now, I don't see any numbers here, but you know pensions certainly help the calculation. When you factor in Social Security, that's going to be significant. But you have to look at combined incomes and what you're trying to replace. Are you trying to replace just your income or both of your incomes? And that's a really key point because if the amount of money saved cannot do that, then you have to start evaluating whether or not the income that makes sense for the amount of money saved plus pensions, et cetera, is going to work for you. And can you live that lifestyle? So yeah, he might not have to work for the rest of his life, but you guys need to be on the same page with regard to what is the spending strategy when we hit that point. 62 is still young, and maybe he has to work till 66 or 68, but it's all going to depend on let's do the numbers and find out what it is we're actually trying to replace in terms of income and how much of that income is going to be replaced with pensions and Social Security. Very important question. And even the, the fact that he's younger, great. That means he's going to be around longer, ostensibly, but... <laughs> still got to run the numbers. Do you ever have a situation like that where, uh, I mean, is that common where maybe maybe one spouse has just been employed by places that had, you know, great retirement plans and the other spouse was in a line of work or with employers that, you know, either didn't offer it or they just weren't very good at taking advantage of the, the opportunities that may have existed. And so the, you kind of end up, you know, with that out of whack nature of, of, you know, how they're saved for retirement. Yes. And it's not that uncommon, actually, where you've got, you know, one spouse is a little more of a saver and the other spouse is not, especially in a second marriage arrangement. But I think the really important or the key point is that you've got to be on the same page with regard to what is the money for and what is the retirement distribution going to look like? Because if you're married, unless you're going to say, this is mine and that's yours, and I'm going to only use mine and you're only going to use yours, that can be a real recipe for disaster potentially. So you've got to get on the same page with regard to that expenditures and savings, et cetera. And sometimes you do see that where, especially if somebody went from a W2 job to become a business owner, 
So they may have taken a lot of their savings and invested it into the business because that will change the whole calculation. So you, you need to work together on your decisions going forward. And it helps to basically run the numbers as a unit so that you have a good feel for the, for the outcome in context of the decision. All great questions so far today on the mailbag. Amanda, thank you for that one. Uh, I've got two more for you, Janine, if we can slide them in here. One is from Chris. Chris says, I've never really considered myself to be in the ballpark of needing a financial advisor. It sounds like the kind of thing that only rich people with millions of dollars do. Am I wrong in thinking that? Yes, probably because a lot of people think they don't have enough money is the reason, uh, is often the reason they don't come to see a financial advisor plus financial advisor, the term has a very broad meaning. You've got folks who are investment advisors and some who are who are holistic advisors. For instance, here's, here's a great example. I had somebody come in who had a lot of debt and he had already gone to an investment advisor and she couldn't help him. And I said, well, you've got to consider this as part of the bigger picture. So we worked on how do you strategize paying down debt how do you structure everything else you're doing? Because the money decisions around the money are just as important as the money. And everybody could use a mentor for that. And unless you were taught that by your parents, which most people were not, you know, an advisor should be helping you with some of those money decisions so that you make them more effectively or efficiently and not in silos, which everybody tends to, is how most people make their decisions is in silos. And they don't have a sounding board. So the job of a financial advisor is to provide the sounding board and to help you, you know, with feedback. Some things are more effective than others in terms of decisions. And yes, you, you know, yes, if you only have $10,000 to invest, you're not going to get a lot of attention. And that's just the nature of the business. But everybody can benefit from the right financial advisor. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be something there to work with. You can't make money appear out of thin air for people, but you also don't have to have, you know, truckloads of it and shaking your hands in the air saying, I don't know what to do with all this. I need a financial advisor either. You don't have to be at either of those ends of the spectrum to see the benefits of working with an advisor. So always keep that in mind, Chris. There's so many things. I always like to broaden applications in the financial world out to life. And, and there's so many other situations where we have this assumption that that's not for me, or I'm not, I'm not a candidate for that, or I'm, I'm probably just not in the right realm to, you know, have that experience, whatever it might be in life. And so often we're wrong. And so we've got to make sure that we, you know, quit kind of cheating ourselves out of getting the right help, the right coaches, the right advice, all that kind of stuff. But uh, good well, question, Chris. Yeah. I mean, and, and just as an aside, I was having a conversation with my parents when they were visiting recently. And and my dad was like, well, how does this work? How does this work? And I said, well, the problem is, is you're in the picture. You can't see the picture because you're in the picture. Hmm. And for most people, when it comes to money decisions, because they're connected to emotion, that is the problem. You're in the picture and you need somebody like any coach is able to look at the picture and see things that you can't see or think of things in a way that you can't think of or haven't thought of. And that's where, where, where I think the value of an advisor really comes into play. So important to remember all of these things on the mailbag today. And there's one more question that we'll get to to wrap things up. Ted has a question for you. It's a short and sweet one, Janine. And uh, Ted must have listened to the podcast from two weeks ago. And uh, he's, he's taking it one step further to ask the question I didn't ask. 
Do you think 2018 is the year we will finally see the stock market crash again? We talked so much about 2013 to 2017. I guess he's like, hey, what's what about 2018? Is this finally the year it happens? <laughs> I don't know. Let me check my crystal ball. I think it says <laughs> I don't know. Nobody knows that. There doesn't seem to be. There's no bubble. People who are experts on bubbles, I remember reading, reading an article a couple months ago. There's no bubble out there. There's no tech contagion. There's no you know, mortgage uh, contagion like we had back in 2008, uh, seven and eight. You were not seeing that. And the interesting thing is people, when the market rises this fast, people are, do get a little bit worried. But I would, I would drop back to say that if we have, it's pretty much connected to the GDP. So if you have a 3% GDP every year, if we had had that for the last eight years, we would already be at 27,000 in the Dow. So I think there's still a lot of room for the market to run. Will we get some dips occasionally? Sure, because that's what the market does. It goes up and it goes down and then it goes up again. <laughs> the question is, how are you positioned in it? So when it does go down, you're not you're not correlated exactly to that. You're not going to go down as far. So, but here's the thing to remember. If the market didn't move up and down, nobody would make any money. Yeah. So, because nothing is linear in life. It, it's like so, so many other things in the financial world too. It's not so much, you know, what is the right answer to this question? It's, are you asking the right question in the first place? And so the right question isn't, is this the year the stock market crashes? The year is, do I have a plan that can adapt whether the market crashes or not, that can be successful it, in, in multiple climates? That's exactly right. And that, that's a great way to put it. Do you, what is your plan you know, to protect on the downside but still capture a lot of the upside? Yeah, absolutely. Well, all great questions on the mailbag today. Again, you can always go to TheusWealthAdvisors.com if you have questions about your financial plan, about investing, about saving. That's TheusWealthAdvisors.com, serving you not only in Columbia and Howard County, but the surrounding areas as well. And you can always call Gracie at 443-718-6311. Talk to her about setting up a time to meet with Janine to discuss your financial plan. Again, you'll probably reach Gracie when you call 443-718-6311. We can feature a question here on the show, or you can just ask it one-on-one. We don't have to put your question on the podcast. You can just do it in the office with Janine one-on-one or over the phone if you would prefer. That is totally fine. 443-718-6311 is that number, or as always, online at TheusWealthAdvisors.com. That'll do it for this edition of the podcast. For Janine, I'm Walter, and we'll talk to you next time on Your Financial Mission.